Yo, yo, what up, what up? Welcome to the WTF Should I Do With My Life podcast. I am your host, Jacob Sokol, and this podcast is all about helping you live with the highest levels of purpose, success, and authenticity while being strategic about the unique opportunities and challenges that exist today. I've done interviews with world-class researchers like Tal Ben-Shahar, who taught the most popular class at Harvard of all time. I've interviewed Rick Hansen, who's a world-class neuroscience, author of Buddha's Brain. I've also interviewed some New York Times bestsellers on the topic of peak performance, like Daniel Coyle, who wrote the book The Talent Code, and Tony Schwartz, who wrote The Power of Full Engagement. I've also interviewed spiritual luminaries like Nicole Day Doan, founder of Orgasmic Meditation, and world-renowned yogi Elena Brower. Today's interview is with my homie Jennifer Gresham. Jennifer's got a background of being a lieutenant, a lieutenant colonel, and named one of the top scientists in the U.S. Air Force one of the top scientists in the U.S. Air Force. And her mission was to transform ordinary performance into extraordinary human performance, applying research from the fields of biology, psychology, and technology. So she sat at the table with generals and rock stars, helping giving advice and directing a $100 million research project. Um, These days, Jennifer's on a mission to create thought leaders that achieve extraordinary success both personally and professionally. So if you know me, you know I don't come from a background of academia. I come from a background of doing graffiti in the streets. And when I get a chance to vibe with someone who has excelled so well in the academic world and then even to the next level in the U.S. Air Force, it's a really cool combination of our different ways of approaching things, even though the essence of what we're doing comes down to being the same thing. And today's topic is money. That's right, the Skrilla, the Moolah, the money. And we're going to have fun diving into it. Jennifer is really smart, really perceptive, and really practical. And so we cover a shit ton of topics that are both Uh, amazingly interesting, but also actionable things you can do to make more money. Some specific things that we talk about are a disturbingly easy strategy for increasing your income by two to even 10 times. That sounds crazy, 10 times, but Jennifer actually shares an example of how that worked for one of her clients. Um, We talk about the number one mindset to increase your income, no matter what profession you're in. We talk about topic that I've been really focused on lately, which is how do you make yourself recession-proof so that you're not just doing good when the economy's doing good, but you are always doing good? And how do you make sure that robots don't steal your job in the future? I didn't grow up being some kind of science geek and all all into uh, futuristic stuff, but the reality is, is if you look at where we are now and you look at the next few years ahead, no, no less the less the next few decades, We've got major disruption happening to all of the industries that we work in. And so how do we protect ourselves and equip ourselves in order to best prepare for rocking it in the future? With no further ado, let's jump on in. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. You are so welcome. Yeah, well, I'm stoked to have you here. And it's been super cool to get to know you over the last six months. Can you believe it's been... I don't know if it's, can you believe it's been six months or is it like, has it only been six months? (laughs) But it's been, it's been so uh, cool to kind of have you in my corner and to kind of get to play with you um, together this year. And yeah, I'm stoked to have you with us. I'm stoked to dive into some of your wisdom today. So thanks for taking the time to join us. You're welcome. It'll be fun. Yeah. Well, let's see how miserable we can make it for people. Does that work for you? Let's just see. Like, can we make the most miserable interview and conversation of all? Let's just, how quickly can we get them to stop listening? I think that would be a fun angle for today. You think so? I don't know. I think people can do that by themselves. I don't think they need that. You, you need think, us for that. I, but we're coaches, right? Shouldn't we be helping people and achieve the results? <laughs> I can't do it. I'm sorry, Jacob. Yeah, I'm going to have to disappoint you. I tried to get Jennifer to sell out, but she wouldn't do it. So, okay. Here we are. Um, well, you know, I, I met you um, this year, as I said, and, and me and you have 
mastermind together. We spent time supporting each other. And one of the things that you've supported me with and I've seen you support other people with is making more money. And so what brought you to this part in the journey that you're on where you are supporting people in making more money? Boy, it's been a number of things. So one of the big things, so I was in the military for 16 years. And does that mean like firing like rocket launchers? Like what were you doing? (laughs) I was a scientist, scientist. so I do a lot of different things, so managed nuclear treaties. uh, Which sounds just as badass as firing rockets, by the way, I got (laughs) to say. It was pretty cool. I'm not going to lie to you. It was pretty cool. I taught chemistry for a while. I gave out grants, all sorts of things. But what's interesting about the military, right, is that you get paid based on how long you've been in the service and your rank. That's it. Right. So, for example, when I got my master's and later got my Ph.D., I didn't make any more money. Hmm. I earned the same amount of money as somebody else. And whether I did a good job or a bad job, I made the same amount of money. So that was sort of an interesting intro to real life. And so when I left the service and I remember I was like, all right, I got to figure out what the heck I want to do with my life and how am I going to get paid for it? Um you know, I did what a lot of military people do. I thought, oh, I'll just become a contractor and I'll work for the military as a, as a civilian. And this crusty old guy kind of sat me down and he was like, look, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but, you know, you're losing your value every day. He's like, your only value is your connections to the military and the people you know, and every year those will become less and less, and there's no way you're going to make as much as you used to, blah, blah, blah. And I came away so depressed. I thought you were going to say inspired. So inspired by the crusty man. <laughs> yeah. And so I did end up taking a position as a contractor, and they said to me, well, how much do you want to be paid? And I was like, Phew. you know, it was that moment, like, I have no idea. I don't know how much to ask for. I don't know how much I'm worth. And so I literally calculated out if you could take my military salary and and pay it out by the hour, that's what I asked for. And that felt like a huge win because I was like, well, hey, there you go. I am worth exactly what I was worth, you know, a couple of weeks ago before I left. But here you have the satisfaction of you doing it on your own, on your own terms. Right. So I was doing that part-time. I ended up starting my own business and um, I started coaching people. And gradually, I, again, faced with this question, what do I charge people? I have no idea what to put a price tag on this. So I picked a number and I started charging people at that time $200 an hour, which felt huge, right? I mean, it was way more than I was making in my hourly salary as a uh, lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. So... That started going pretty well, and so I I quit my contracting job, did that for a while, but eventually they came back, and they said, Jen, we really want you to to come back and do some more work for us, and I said, all right, well, you know what? My rate is now $200 an hour. Mm. So that was more than double what they were paying me before. And was there an internal conflict that you went through in order to then say that new number to them? Yeah. (laughs) It (laughs) It felt pretty freaking bold because... Not only was it more than double, but at the same time, you know, I felt like they'd been so generous with me. These were people I'd worked with for a long time. I Mm. loved working with them. But on the other hand, I said, ordinary people are paying me $200 an hour. I think the government can afford it. So how were you able to say that to them without feeling, um, I guess, disrespectful? And it's not something that you should feel just based on what I'm hearing from your story. I could see how that might be that might come up for you. It did. Um, Ultimately, it was, I had to justify it in terms of one, fairness. So if I'm charging an ordinary person $200 an hour, I felt the government should pay their fair share. Mm. But I think the other piece of it was starting to feel like my time is valuable. And the truth is that I really liked the coaching way more than I liked the contract work, even though it was great. But it didn't make my heart sing. Well, and they, they say the best negotiation strategy is being willing to walk away. So that's what yep, you had. I, I, had I, I was very conflicted about going back. I would say I went back primarily because they said they needed me and I <laughs> wanted to help them. 
So I gave him this $200 an hour, which felt incredibly risky and arrogant and all of that. And they said, okay. No problem. <laughs> Didn't bat an eye. And, what was, and that was that first moment where I thought to myself, wow, I had been leaving a lot of money on the table and had, you know, they weren't going to do that for me. They weren't going to advocate for me to get paid what I'm worth. I had to do that work myself. And so over time, I really became interested in how do you figure out what you're worth? How do you put a price tag on what you're doing? And I've done this for a number of clients in terms of salary negotiation. Uh, I've done it for myself. And I've just found that there's usually a lot more room than people give themselves credit for. And so there's a piece of just realizing your own worth, but there's also a piece of creativity that goes into it and how you make that presentation. Mm. So let's imagine someone's listening to the podcast now, one person, and they're like, Jennifer, this sounds great. You know, I'd love to make more money. If I had more money, I could, you know, eat healthier, invest in the things that I care about, like my well-being, have cool experiences. I'd love to make more money. How would you advise them in starting to figure out how to do that? There's a few things. One is to get into the mindset of whoever's paying you. And you really need to understand the value that you're providing them. And so this is something that I do with my clients all the time is really helping them open up. Because I think we're so close to it when it's us, right? When it's us providing value and you, you can even sometimes get somebody to say it like, oh, well, what I really do here is I, you know, help these people appear as thought leaders in their field and therefore they get more funding. Mm. Well, really, how much more funding do they get because of the work that you're doing for them? Millions of dollars. Huh, that sounds pretty valuable, right? And so it, it, it really does matter what the value is that you're bringing. And even if somebody does, let's say, a job... Um, like they're working in a fast food restaurant, they might say, well, you know, it's going to be pretty tough to argue that I should get more. And it is in that environment because there's certainly um, some very rigid ideas about what those jobs will pay. But if you can make a case for yourself, for example, if you can provide really solid value and increase the amount of money that that store is bringing in compared to other stores that are surrounding you, you might have a case, but it's all about understanding that value that you're really providing. Cool. That's, that's really fascinating. So the first part would be getting into the mind of the person who's paying you. And the second part would be, and then figuring out what value do you provide to them? And as a result, how much do they earn or, or, or kind of how does that translate into dollars into their life because of you? Right. Got it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's, there's some elements here because not everything you provide will be monetary, right? So, for example, I've worked with career changers for a long time, helping them figure out what they'd like to do next in their career, how to make a pivot. And that's a, actually a kind of a hard one, right? Because for the vast majority of people, when they make that pivot, they probably expect to have a reduced salary in their new career, hmm. at least at the start of it. Now, I always try to tell them, look, the chances of you advancing in a new career that you really love are way better than advancing in a career where you're just marking time, but there's still that initial feeling of loss that you have to deal with. So the real value, for example, of what I'm providing there is, hey, how much would you pay to stop feeling anxious every day when you got home? What would it be worth to you? to actually come home from your job and say, wow, what a great day. And to talk with excitement and energy and enthusiasm, if your work actually energized you instead of drained you, and you had so much energy left over for the relationships in your life, mm. right? And so when you start to frame it that way, it's actually worth quite a lot. So there's a distinction. There's the monetary value and then also the emotional value. Mm-hmm. It depends on what you're providing. And, and sometimes I'd imagine both. Yep. Absolutely. So let's, let's play with this. If, if you're cool, let me can I throw another example at you and maybe we'll brainstorm? Yeah. I love it. 
So I'm, I'm running a group right now, a really intimate group, and what are the chances that I've never had this profile client before or, or this a client with this occupation before, um, but there's two librarians in my group. So, and, and maybe that's a more challenging one because there's a bureaucracy in place perhaps, but you know, if, and I think they will probably be listening to this, what's up ladies, um, how would you, how would you navigate uh, someone in that position who, um, who'd want to do this, want to make more money? Do you happen to know what either one of them does as a librarian? Because there's different types. Mm, now you're just making me look bad. Um, I'm so sorry. We no, it's fine. To have a family of librarians. <laughs> well, I asked the right person then. Um, I don't know the specifics. I think it is um, an organizational role, I think. I think that they're, they're leading some, some people and kind of working in teams. Although I'm, I'm not sure. Okay, so I'm just going to kind of play around with this because I happen to know some different kinds of librarians. So, for example, let's suppose that you're the person who's working with people who come in who want reference material. And so you're really the person who's saying, oh, let me help you find the sources that you need for whatever project you're working on. The difficulty for a library, right, is that their funding is going to be probably dictated by the county or the state or whatever, the city. So they're not going to get any more money if they perform better. Mm. But what you could argue, for example, is, look, I could do this role and here's the value that I provide. So I help people find source material. And that's good. But I would kind of dig a little bit deeper and say, you know, what we're really doing here and what I can help people do is I can help create a community where um, new businesses can start up because they have the resources of the library to help them get the material they need to do market research, to find funding, um, all of these things. So then you become a significant community resource rather than I'm just providing a service. Mm, So cool. And yeah, so you can reimagine your role. And, And one of the things that I like to tell people is that your perfect job may not exist yet, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to create it. Mm, I love it. Um, that's awesome. So here's what I'm going to do. I got really hot in my office. I'm actually going to bring us into the living room right now. I'm going to just keep rolling because why okay. not? Um, hey guys, I you want to? No idea. I was going to have this effect on you. Oh my! You just <laughs> high flame immediately, turning up the heat. So I'm going to bring us into the, uh, the kitchen over here. Hang on a second. Everyone listening on audio, you get the uh, <laughs> you get to use your imagination. That's great. Oh, it's so much nicer out here. Okay. Next thing I know, my girlfriend will walk in the house, and then we'll have a family affair here. That'll be awesome. I can I can help her too. Okay. <laughs> oh, that'd be fun. Um, cool. So, you know, this is really cool. I love the specificity with which we're we're unpacking um, this. What do you think? gets in the way of people making more money? You know, there's a lot of things, as you might imagine. Um, One is that I find people are so, when we talk about making money, they're thinking about themselves, Mm. right? I see this a lot with my career change clients, right? They're thinking about, I need a job. I need something that's fulfilling. I need to make this much money, And none of those things are going to be very appealing to the person who's employing you. And it's not in any way, shape, or form a good justification for how much you want to be paid. Mm. So the only way to justify how much you want to be paid has to be in the value that you're bringing to the other person who's paying you. So part of it is getting outside of your own needs and into the needs of the person who's paying you, whether that's an employer or a client. But I think the other piece of this that is that we have a whole set of assumptions. Tell us. A, a set of assumptions that we often don't test, right? So we might say, for example, oh, well, no one will ever pay that much for my service or my product or whatever, right? And we hear this all the time, right? This idea, this assumption is reinforced. Oh, well, people have a very set idea, for example, of how much a book costs. You can only charge so much, how do you know until you've tried, right? And so we can find examples where it's not true. Now, those are anomalies. So not all books can 
jump outside of that price range. And I think that's the point, right? Too often people use that as, well, that's an anomaly. It won't apply to me. And it's like, you're right. It won't apply to you if you are like most of the other people in the category. So you have to find a way to differentiate yourself, often in terms of value, but sometimes in in terms of service. So let me give you an example. I had a woman who just came to me recently. She um, is a freelance magazine article writer. And in a super tough market, the travel market. And she was like, Jen, how in the world can I get paid more? And I was like, all right, that's a tough one, again, because there's a, a certain idea of what it's worth to have someone write an article for a magazine, right? And moreover, if they don't pay you, there's like 100 other people who are willing to write travel articles, and some of them are willing to do it for free, so I said, why don't you go out and interview a series of editors about what would make the most mind-blowing submission beyond the article itself? What if you put together a marketing plan to go along with your article? What if you created additional content that could go on that magazine's website so that they could get more subscribers, so that the article would actually send them to the website and then people would subscribe and so forth? I said, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what turns editors on, but they can tell you. And I said, and then you can go pitch that article and sell it. (laughs) But it's right. So it's really being willing to put your assumptions aside about how much somebody's willing to pay until you've asked them. Mm. What I love here that I'm hearing and kind of everything that we've spoken about so far is that it's always about putting yourself in the mind of the person who it is that you're looking to receive the money from. And ultimately, yeah. it's a shift to not what can I get, but how can I give to the point where it's so beneficial for the person who would be receiving that it would just become a no-brainer for as a result of that, me to increase the amount that I'm receiving as well. Exactly. Exactly. And sometimes that can be super simple. It can be as simple as changing what you call yourself. Like we talked about with the librarian, you know, um, I have another woman who was a virtual assistant and she was, you know, she said, I just raised my prices to $50 an hour and it feels, you know, crazy. This is a woman who's never been told no in a pitch. She has a hundred percent conversion rate. And she was scared to death to raise her prices from $40 an hour to $50 an hour. And I said, you know, you're going to find this crazy, but I think you could actually improve your prices by an order of magnitude. I think we could change your prices to $500 an hour if we just gave you a different name besides a virtual assistant. Because the, what she was doing and the reason that so many people were hiring her, and in fact, she did no marketing whatsoever. It was all referral was because she was doing all of these things that most virtual assistants don't do. But business coaches or online business managers or, you know, uh, a marketing director does. And so I said, let's play around with changing your title and how you bill yourself. And I said, and then we can put another zero at the end. So you're talking about increasing her income by 10. What was the title that you ended up giving her? We're still working on it. Yeah. See, that's why this stuff is so powerful. And, you know, you you see it because you play with this all the time. But it's a little shift can make a massive difference. And we've been raised in a culture to believe that success is incremental. It's like you you hit grade three and then grade four and then grade (laughs) five, right? You're like you you graduate and you go to college and you start out at whatever. You're 40,000, 50,000, 60,000. And what we're doing here is we're saying, no, wait, let's step out of the way that the system works and let's think strategically and be courageous enough to experiment with it and actually test reality and see if the assumptions that we're making are true. And if they're not, well, we can play with it. We don't need to associate our self-worth with it. We don't need to um, disrespect anyone in the process. We're not immoral because we're talking about making more money. This just gets to be a fun game that we get to play. Exactly. This is what, like, that pretty much summarizes my big main message is people need to experiment. They need to be willing to go out and play with this stuff because you don't know what someone's willing to pay you until you ask. 
And there's also different ways to handle this, you know, and you and I have talked about this too. Suppose you put out a price and they're like, no. It doesn't mean, right, like, all right, that's it. It's a no. It's a no-go. There's ways you can play, right? So in some respects, by going high and getting a no, you've now given yourself an interesting negotiation, right? Because in a negotiation, you know you have to start high, right? You would never, I say you would never, I actually have had clients who went into an initial negotiation at the price point they wanted and I had to like save them in in, like this Herculean way. Did you like jump in front of them as they were walking into the office calling a bomb threat? I'm trying to think how I can tell this story. I don't, I don't think I'll reveal anything here that will um, identify the person, but this, this is a real story. So I had a client, um, he'd been out of work for over a year and was now out of money. I mean, he literally used the last of his savings to hire me as his coach. And he said, look, my confidence is shot, but I freaking need a job. And I was like, great. And now the important point thing is that he was super talented, really had all sorts of good stuff on his resume. So that wasn't an issue. So we got him to the point where, yep, this company really wanted him. He, he had all the stuff that they wanted. And then he called me up and he said, all right, I'm really excited. I think this is going to go. We're, you know, I just put it, I told him what I wanted for my salary. And I said, what did you tell him? And he said, the number. And I was like, but I thought that's the number you actually wanted. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, you can't do that. I said, you're not going to get anywhere close to that number. And he's like, but that's a fair number. And I'm like, I know it's a fair number, but that's not how negotiation works. So we literally had to backtrack. And I said, you need to go in there. And I said, he had, um, as part of his interview, which was really smart, by the way, he had done an audit on this business and the kind of the, for the position that he was applying for and identified all the holes in what they were doing in that area to date. And and there were things that they hadn't seen before. Like, they didn't know that those were issues. So they a, were like... I want to have a whole conversation with you just about how he did that. That sounds amazing. Oh, it, it was amazing. And so they came away like, crap, we need to hire this guy because we wouldn't have even identified these things as issues had we not had him into interview. So I said, you need to go back and tell them that the number that you gave them was for the position that they advertised for. But... What you talked about in an interview was actually a different position because that is not the same as what they were advertising for. So just to kind of give it a little bit of reality here, they were advertising for a creative director and I was making the argument that what he had really done was more like a marketing director. Big difference in salary. And I said they're getting such a bargain with you because they are essentially getting both people rolled into one. They're going to get a creative director and a marketing director, but they only have to pay one salary. And if that's what they're interested in, then your price point needs to be up here. And again, it was double. It was actually a little bit more than double the number he had given them. And he said, Jen, I can't. I can't do that. (laughs) And I said, there's no expectation that you're going to get that number. We're going to come down, but we're going to negotiate. That is what you do. And so I talked him into it, you know, kind of coaching him through how to present this idea of you're getting two people in one and you're getting this marketing director who gets paid way more. So in this, in essence, you're getting a deal. And um, they only came down a very small amount. Wow. So he got an extra $100,000 out of that negotiation. Speechless. Let's just let that simmer. <laughs> yeah. He, he couldn't see that, right? Because he was, had hard times, therefore was undervaluing himself. He was desperate. Mm. And so he couldn't see the true uh, scope of value that he was bringing to the table. Mm. I love this so much. It makes me want to ground our conversation even more. And now I'm thinking about where we first started, which was how does someone go about making more money? And you had mentioned get inside the mindset of the person who would be paying you and then figure out what value it is that you provide for them. So so let's say that they actually did that. I actually want to hop back over to that. 
and they and yeah. they started to calculate okay like here's how much the company earns because I'm in it here's how much they pay me you know and they they kind of figure out um those numbers so what would be the next step after that would it be talking to their boss would it be figuring out how they could add even more value what would they do at that point that's a tough one to answer because it's abstract um and it depends right if you're in a corporate setting if you are running your own business that kind of thing um do you happen to have a specific example you know i'm just thinking about the person who's listening right now who um let me think of some of the people who are in my programs uh one two three um so I'm thinking about someone who, okay, let's play with this. This is going to be a little bit different. Okay. You, you let me know if this works. If not, we'll, we'll come up with a different example. So I have and I've some, got one in my head if you need it. Okay. So I have someone who's in one of my, my programs who is a world-class musician, plays for the London Orchestra, the, um, the Philharmonic. Is that? I said it wrong last uh-huh. time. I said like Philharmonica. <laughs> it was a big laugh. <laughs> She plays the Philharmonica. She's really talented. <laughs> um, she's amazing. She's like you know one of the best in the world. And um, and so she is inspired to make some changes as far as actually um, you know her position. And she's thinking about while she loves that place, she's thinking that she'd like to um, do work in maybe a different setting. That's not the uh, that that the current iteration of what that looks like, but with different people. Um, and so I guess I'm, this is a bit of a different situation, talking about like career jump or shift. Uh, but I don't think that she'd be inspired to like make less money in the process, right? So so how would you navigate that? In many ways, I'll tell you that a career jump is a much easier way to do this than within your existing organization. Not that it can't be done. But it's when you get to reinvent yourself, you get to redefine the rules of what you're worth and how much you're paid. Right. So just like I did for the military, you know, that guy telling me like, oh, you're only worth your value of your connections and you'll never be paid what you were paid as a military person. Well, you know what? I got to set those rules when I made that jump and he was wrong. So that was his opinion. And maybe that was his experience. But he also probably had never tried to do something else. Yeah. So. I think it, I mean, a lot of it depends on what she wants that new environment to look like. You know, is she going to strike out on her own? Is she going to, I don't know, is she going to play for a band? Mm. That's, that's tough. Um, is she going to, I mean, there's so many different ways that you can play with like it's it's pretty much endless you know what i need to do i need to bring on like a group of like seven people for you to just rapid coach in an hour so that it's not it's theory so yeah. maybe maybe we'll do that as a um as a follow-up if, if you guys listening would like that if you'd like to see kind of like instead of in the abstract but see the coaching of it i think that could be a really cool conversation let me give you an example from another client that i worked with which is kind of cool so she was a freelance editor um and her thing was that she was working for a university. Um, so like 95% of her funding came from this university and she was really nervous about it. Cause she said, God, if anything ever happens to this contract, I'm toast. Mm. So she initially hired me to help her get a steady stream of new clients. But the problem was she had so much work from the university. She really couldn't afford to take on new clients. Like she, she would just drive herself into the ground. So this is another piece of that, you know, we talk about the assumptions about how much you're worth and how much you charge, is that you need to charge enough so that you can actually deliver the greatest value. Hmm. So she didn't have the capacity to deliver the kind of value she could at the prices that she was charging because she had to take on too much work. Yeah. So in her very next pitch, I said, okay, we're going to increase your rates. I said, a conservative 20%. And she was like, 20%? Like, I can't do that. She said, Jen, I'm already at the high end of my pay rate for what people like me do. And I was like, who says? Who says we can't so, increase it? It's so fun to play with this stuff because money fe- – sorry to cut you off. Remember yeah. where you are so we can keep going there. But money feels like one of those subjects that it's like 
it's so scary, it's so rigid, it's so fear-inducing that we can so tense up and lose the creativity <clears throat> and the playfulness and the excitement of experimenting. And that's what I see you do here as you're talking. You're just like, okay, we'll just try this and see how it goes. And for her, she's like, but my life will be over without that, right? There's like this like massive and panic button that just got pressed. And you're like, meh, you'll figure it out. Yeah. So, you know, just like with the other person I told you, we were playing around with her title so that we could increase her rate. In this case, what we did is we played around with how we presented her rate. So instead of presenting her rate as an hourly rate, we said, why don't you charge a certain amount per day? And then you will bid that project on how many days you're going to be working. I said, but you don't need to tell them how many hours you're actually working in that day. So we actually reduce the number of hours in her day, but then increase the price. So that's how we were able to get that 20% change. Yeah. To them, it was pretty much um, transparent. That is, what you were then saying to them is, all right, here's this project. I think it'll take me five days. It, it caught, you know, my rate is so much per day. Is it worth it for you? Is that worth it for you? That's the only question that now comes up. Is it worth it for you to pay me this much for this amount of time to get this project complete? And their response, no surprise here, was sure. Mm, yeah. They didn't know what anybody else was paying her, but she had a reputation as one of the best in her industry. So, Okay, here's another thing that's really important, especially for freelancers. A lot of times, especially somebody like this, where she's a freelance editor, there's tons of freelance editors out there, right? So you tend to think, oh, there's so much competition, so I have to lower my prices in order to be competitive. There's two problems with this kind of thinking. One is that the kinds of people that you would like to hire you are not looking for the cheapest person to round, right? Because it signals that you're not that good. So the best employers are looking for people who are really good and are going to deliver good service and they know that that costs money. So as long as you're within a certain range and even then you can play with it, it they don't care. But here's the other really important thing. Most of these people aren't going around and shopping around with the entire group of freelance editors on the market, Right. Many times you were the only person they're talking to. They've asked somebody, hey, do you know someone who does this? They got your name. And they've really already decided to hire you as long as you're not too far out of the range of what they expected. Even then, you can still sometimes make that sale, even if you're way outside what they expected, if you can show your value. If you can say, hey, I'm not just an editor because... And again, this is what we talked about with this client. She, you know, she said, who's going to pay me that kind of money to put red marks on a paper? And I said, no one. They're not paying you to put red marks on a paper. In this case, this was somebody who was, going, who was writing a grant application. And if their grant application was successful, they were going to get millions of dollars. So really, their investment in her to make the best grant application that we, she, they could was well worth it. She was still undercharging. Mm. Yeah, so it's really people are paying for the results that they're getting, not the amount of hours that you put towards that. And so I, I can actually remember I, I signed up to work with a coach and uh, this particular individual, it was $10,000 to work with him for one day. And it was a huge stretch for me. I mean, if you're listening, you'd be like, what? Like, you know, and that's how I felt. I was like, what? But I'm going for it. Like, this is the life I'm inspired to live. We were mapping out a million dollar business plan for the next year. And I remember, you know, he was supposed to be there at like eight in the morning and he, he didn't come until like nine or nine thirty. And I, and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I paid all this money to this guy and he's like an hour and a half late. But what I didn't understand was that and, and maybe there's a little bit of, like, one, he probably should have still been on time. But two, there was, he was working in, in cultures. He was getting hired by million, sometimes um, multi-million, sometimes billion-dollar companies to come in and coach. And they're not so concerned about how many hours he's working. They're concerned about the result that he's ultimately getting. For me, that was a little bit of a different model because here I am in, like, my, you know, at the time, it was, like, a one-bedroom New York apartment, you know, like... 
It was very different. We were not a billion dollar company at that point. But, you know, but I, I can remember that. So my question for you, you know, going off of what you're saying, what I love about it, Jen, is that you're so nonchalant. It's just like, yeah, so okay, so if they say that, then we'll do this. Or if you present it this way, then we'll do that. How does someone who's going through that navigate the fear? And I know we're talking in abstract here, so it's harder to coach unless it's specific. But let's say someone does talk to their boss or ask for that increase or renegotiate or propose a new rate. And they start to notice themselves really feel a lot of fear. Any kind of best practices or things you tell them to keep in mind for a situation like that? I think one piece of it is it's worth asking. Are there repercussions? You know, I think that's really what people are worried about. Are there repercussions for me asking for more? And the honest answer is sometimes. Right? Especially in a corporate setting. Going to get like a pimp slap? Like what is, what is the repercussion? The repercussion can be if you do that poorly. If, if you go in there and you're super nervous and you fail to justify your value, you will actually decrease your value in the mind of your supervisor rather than increase it. Because of so, your composure? Compos- right. Your composure, the way you've handled that. You've, you've just now signaled you're not really ready. So whatever they thought of you before that conversation, it can go down. So yeah, so this seems like a big risk. So perfect. Take us into how do we deal with this? Yeah. So part of that is trying to dial down the fear and saying to yourself, look, this is a conversation. It's a negotiation. It's going to last beyond this conversation, right? And so it may or may not work with this person. But as long as you are willing and have the ability to pivot, and like I said, it's often so much easier to have this conversation with someone else, I would probably start there. Go out and pitch yourself to other people and practice there first. Mm. They don't know what you're worth. And there's no real loss there because if they don't hire you, well, you you still have what you already had. That's so smart. You know, when I think about as a coach, the more that I've learned to do sales, the less nervous I've gotten. And at some point, it just becomes fun. It's like, ah, let's have some fun, you know, talking about working together. And there's still times when I'll raise my rates or I'll have not done a set, like been doing proposals for a while and I'll get nervous. And so for me, it's like, of course, repetition is how you get good at this. However, looking at someone who's in a corporate job who might only have one person to talk to, which is their boss, I think that's a great uh, mindset, which is you can go shop yourself at other companies or go on a bunch of interviews and just try it out there and see how that works. And then you can actually come back to your boss and say, hey, I got an offer for this much. What can you do? And then that becomes a negotiating tactic. Right. And I think it's important, too, if you go out there and you're pitching yourself and you're not getting what you want, that's a good sign that maybe you haven't really gotten into the mindset of what your value is. Mm. Any, that's another question I wanted to ask you. Any um, strategies for figuring out how to actually be more valuable instead of just asking for more money, but how do you actually deliver more value? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, part of this is really just spending some time getting in the mindset of whoever you're working for and saying, what are they really trying to accomplish here? Hmm. What can I do to make that more valuable? If you can't figure it out yourself, ask them. Hmm. Right? And again, you don't have to ask your boss if you're in a corporate setting. I mean, it depends on the relationship. Put together a market survey and decide to go out and interview all the people, all your competitors And say, you know, what is it that really brings the most value in this particular department or whatever? I'm putting together an article on this and and I'd really appreciate your insight. So cool. And, you know, maybe you take that to your boss and say, hey, I did this survey and, you know, here's what people are saying and I'd love to talk to you about it. You know, what do you think? So here's a question that I've been wrestling with and it's kind of part of my intention to go deeper into this. I haven't really heard anybody talk about it, so I'll throw it your way and yeah. we'll see. I love prefacing things like that. It's like I could be talking about anything right now. I could just <laughs> drop like the craziest thing on you. So I'll just let that sit. 
So um, have you ever uh, paid attention to or thought about, you know, how do you make yourself recession-proof? Yes. So part of this is learning what the value is and being at the top of that value scale. That's a piece of it. Meaning like the best in your industry? Mm -hmm. Right. Being invaluable. I mean, I remember in one job that I had when I was in the military, actually, and somebody was saying, Jim, we have a problem here because you have become invaluable in this role and all the information is in your head. And I know you're not going to be here forever. So I really need you to get this down on paper. And so being invaluable can be a good thing and a bad thing. At that moment, they were actually like, okay, you're making me nervous (laughs) because you've done a lot of things and I don't know how to continue it after you're gone. But in the corporate world in particular, um, that's a useful tactic. The other piece of it is practice pivoting, right? I think too often, and, and I will say, so this is something I'm super passionate about. I don't know if you remember this about my career history. So I worked in um, human performance enhancement when I was in the military. And um, a big piece of what we were doing was human-computer interaction, especially taking into account all the advances that were happening in artificial intelligence. So here's what I can tell you. We all have to learn how to pivot because all of our jobs across the board are going to change so fast. And too often people wait until things are dire to pivot. That is the wrong time to do it. The time to learn how to pivot is when things are okay. And so you need to start practicing the mindset of how can I take what I've learned over here and apply it over here. And if you can do that, then you will be recession proof. Because what here's what I can tell you about artificial intelligence is that, you know, everybody talks about, oh, the robots are going to come and take your job. Yes, that may happen. But another five jobs will sprout up behind it that never existed before. And so what you have to be able to do is to position yourself to be able to do those next five jobs. This is like a whole other interview now that I want to go into. (laughs) And I'm actually going to just ask a question. So what skills or positions or knowledge do you think is most valuable in setting ourselves up for a future where there is going to be so much AI and, and the robots as we're calling them? Yeah. So it's starting to think about, you know, what robots or what machines do really, really well is they're fast and they can handle complexity in a way that we cannot. What they can't do, at least so far, is they're not terribly creative They're certainly at least no more creative than the people who created them. And they're not very good at nuance. Hmm. And so being able to see the connections between things and being creative, in my mind, is really where the next age is going. So being a person of ideas and being able to think about how to apply those ideas in different ways is really, that's the future. And we were seeing this in science, by the way. So this was really fascinating. So yet another one of my jobs in the military was to give money to scientists to do grant work. So, for example, we wanted to study what kind of paint would be most effective to help planes not rust so much. It sounds like a boring question, but it's pretty important. And so it turns out that we had a paint that already was really, really effective at doing that. But it had um, uranium in it, and that was a problem. And so from a health hazard standpoint. And so it was, okay, we've got to create a paint that's at least as good as the paint we already have, but that means we have to understand how it works. So we had all of these corrosion scientists studying that question. How does this paint that we've had for decades prevent corrosion? And nobody could answer the question. Hmm. And finally, what we did is we hired a scientist uh, on grant money who had never worked in corrosion in his life. He, he'd never done anything like that. And he was the one who figured it out. And the reason that he was able to do that was he was able to take skills and knowledge and um, ways of thinking from a completely different field and apply it to this new question. 
And that's what people need to learn how to do. That is the whole definition of a pivot, is taking what you learned in one arena and learning how to apply it in another. Mm, That's so valuable. I love it. Um, Let me check in with you. How are you on time right now? I'm cool. You're you're always cool. We know that already. (laughs) Come on. Give us something we don't know. (laughs) Well, let me me ask you this. well, actually, I want to ask you one more question on that before we move on. So would you consider emotional intelligence fitting into the category of what computers or, or machines won't be taking away from us? Yes, yes. Or, or jobs I mean, away from us in that domain? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's evolving, right? I mean, what's very interesting, for example, is even us coaches um, and therapists, for example, they're already finding that in some respects, people prefer to speak to a computer rather than a human because the computer doesn't judge. Mm. That being said, there's another element there, though, right? Because the computer can only say, all right, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm matching it in my database. But there's an element there of an emotional intelligence that I think we don't even understand, much less we don't understand how to program. And it's fascinating because it's not logic. It's emotion. And we're trying right. to map emotion with logic, which in itself is a different frequency, um, et cetera. Yeah. Right. So I think, you know, going back to this idea of, you know, what provides the most value, I think in the future, things that really speak to Um, improving emotional states is going to be incredibly valuable because some of the things that we've traditionally seen as being very valuable, uh, people in finance, right? The people who make money are valuable because they make us money. More and more it's being done by computers. Hmm. Uh, Lawyers, uh, they help protect us from other people taking our money. More and more it's going to be done by computers. Doctors, again, it's, it's mechanics. A lot of it is mechanics, more and more being done by computers. Yeah. So the old things that used to be the highest paying jobs, I think are going to be far less so. And so understanding how to take some of that thinking, but add in the emotional intelligence angle, I think will be really powerful. Mm. I'm so glad that I asked you that because that's like one of my deep, dark questions is like, since I've been growing my business for the last six or seven years, the economy has only gotten better. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm about following your heart and bringing your head. So at some point, it won't only get better. There'll be a dip. And how do I make sure that I'm still providing something that's so valuable that business can continue to thrive in those times? Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks. For- and, and I think a piece of it, too, is is being aware, right? And And kind of keeping your head above water. It's so easy for all of us to get trapped in our to-do list and we're not paying attention to what the changes are and how things are moving. Mm. And so it's really important to stay aware of what's going on in your industry and in industries that you're interested in. Mm. And how do you do that? How do you stay aware of what's going on in the coaching industry or whatever industry you're, you're excited about? Um, voracious reading is one way. Like books, um, blogs, magazines. All of them. Yeah. I'm I'm an idea junkie. So what turns me on is conceptualization and taking ideas and picking them apart and putting them back together again. So some people do that with actual physical objects. I do that with ideas. So good. So such a valuable skill to mindset to approach life through. Yeah. Yeah, Because it's kind of like we, me and you spoke, you know, offline at some point and you're like, basically you're a rule follower, I'm a rule breaker, at least that's how you'd identify yourself. But really what you're actually doing is you're going so deep into the origin principle behind the rule or the system that you're getting back to the kind of foundation that then you can look at the real logic for what it is. And to me, that's a form of breaking the rules. It's like I'm breaking the top rules to get to the essence of what matters here and then creating from that place. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can see how I became a scientist, right? It was the, just the idea of being able to deeply understand things Mm. was so interesting. 
So let me ask you another question that's a little bit off the, the path that we went down. Is there any advice that you hear uh, people giving, uh, coaches, teachers, whoever, when it comes to money that you don't agree with? Where to begin? Um, I think some of it is this idea that as you're raising your prices, we talked about this a little bit, this incremental price increase, right? Um, And I think people feel guilty doing something more than that, right? And I think particularly coaches, um, but there are plenty of other um, uh, markets where people get into it from a very heart-centered place and they're there to help people, right? And so they feel guilty charging more money. Yeah. It's like if I'm spiritual, I can't be rich. Or if I'm helping, then I shouldn't charge. That's right. Right. I, I got in here because I want to help people and therefore I'm going to commit myself to poverty so that I can <laughs> So, <laughs> so I, I can, can be that. the martyr. Yeah. Right. And, and the, the truth of the matter is that doesn't work for anybody because mm-hmm. when you charge low prices, you encourage people to sign up for things they're not really committed for. If your client isn't saying, wow, uh, that was more than I was planning to spend, you've done them a disservice. Right, they need to think about: Do I really want to do this? Am I really going to get something out of this? Because here's the other thing: they're bringing as much value as you are. Hmm. I want to pause there because it's so important. Well, I want to I want to pause on both of those things. So I don't. So unpack the second one: they're bringing as much value as you are. Take us there. Yeah. So we tend to think like I need to help this person. But really what you're doing is you're helping them help themselves. It's not like you can drag them along to where they want to go. They have to be on their own two feet. Yeah. So the more they pay, the more uncomfortable that price point is, the more they bring. Hmm. It's so, it was worded so, um, I wanted to say beautifully, although I think other people might use a different word to describe what you said as far as if they're not uncomfortable about the price that they're paying, then you're doing a disservice to them. And, th- and I know there will be people who really disagree with that. Prepare for the hate wrong. mail. Yeah. We're, we're going to put totally your address funny. on the blog post. That, that's, that's, you know. <laughs> Poor Send post office, it. man. Um, and I get that. As a coach, I get that. You know, people ask me, sometimes I coach coaches and they ask, how do you deal with people who want you to hold them accountable? Someone signs up and for your coaching and how do you offer accountability? And I don't. The money holds them accountable. Mm-hmm. It's once they pay a po- an amount that's a real stretch for them, I no longer need to worry about accountability because they're literally saying, well, they're saying, this is what I value. Money is a physical representation of what we collectively as a society deem equals value. One dollar equals one unit of value. And I'm going to put all of this value that I have towards this dream, these results, this change that I want to make. And therefore, they value the change and they show up, as you're saying, and they step up and and get what they want. Versus I don't really value this. Ah, we'll kind of see what happens. And then they don't actually engage fully. Yeah. And I think a lot of this also goes back to how society defines success and how we absorb that. So mm. we absorb a lot of goals and dreams that aren't really ours. So, mm. for example, how many people out there say they want to write a book? Why? Right? <laughs> if you're not an idea junkie like me, yeah. <laughs> who just can't help themselves, what's really behind that desire to write a book? Most people hate writing. Most writers hate writing. So I think it's worthwhile to really make people pause and say, you know what? Do I really want this book? Do I? Because what will happen, and we know this, right, is they'll buy a book on writing books. They'll take a short course on writing books. They'll do this. They'll do this. And over their lifetime, they will spend a ton of money. Mm. And get nothing out of it. Mm. How can that not be wrong? That's what I think is wrong. Well, I love it. Let me uh, let me wrap up here and and ask you. You know, what's the number one thing that you wish you knew about making more money? And I actually want to put a little twist on this. Um, Three years ago, 
Right. How long has it been since you've been an entrepreneur or out of, in, in your own Five business? Years. Five years. Okay, so let's yeah. say three years ago. So you were already kind of on the path. What's the number one thing you wish you knew three years ago that you now know? Hmm. I think the biggest thing is just it's okay to experiment. And I can't know. I can't know where that ceiling is unless I'm willing to try and break through it. Mm, I and it. I haven't found it yet. Mm, spoken like a true inspiration. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. Uh, Jen, I'm stoked for you. Um, if people want to learn more about what you're up to, I know that you run group programs occasionally. I don't. Uh, do you still have any spots open in the upcoming group program? You do? I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So how can people find out more about maybe contacting you or the program or just staying involved in your work if they're interested to do that? Um, you can always go to my blog, everydaybright.com, and check that out. There's a variety of topics on uh, kind of living a better life there. Um, or you can just email me. That's really the easiest way. Uh, Jen, J-E-N, at everydaybright.com, and uh, I'd be happy to talk with people. I love that. You know, when I first started my site, I used to throw my phone number out in interviews. I was like, ah, just fucking call me. It'll be great. (laughs) And I I remember the first call I got, I was in uh, Times Square, driving through Times Square with my dad and my phone rang and it was an unknown, it was a a number, but I didn't know the number and I put it on speaker so that I wouldn't get a ticket. It's like, hello, is this Jacob from Sensify? And I'm like, yeah. And it was like a, such a moment where like my, I was felt so proud. Like my dad was witnessing like a, a random fan call me, right? It was like I had made it, you know? Um, so I love that you give your email out and, uh, and let people just hit you up directly. Jen, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to talk to you. Right back at you.